God's word to us this morning begins in Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field. Neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am Yahweh, your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am Yahweh. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart, You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. We'll turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And begin in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. If you would turn to the back of your bulletin, and we'll read together as a congregation Psalm 101. Psalm 101. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. O, when you come to me, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. 
A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. Good morning. For those of you who are following the reading plan, uh, we had a particularly appropriate passage this morning. Uh, I was loading up the car and I, I told Renee that I'd have to take a second shower. And uh, in Isaiah 33, he says, who can endure the continual burning, the unending fire? If you would turn with me to James chapter 4. Our passage today, we're going to spend on two verses, and we'll read those two verses and, and go back and gather some of the context in just a minute. James says in chapter 4, verse 11, Do not speak against one another, brothers. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks, speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? If you would pray with me. Father, we come to your word today to hear it and to do it. We want you to shape and mold us with the law of liberty, with the royal law. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to grow in wisdom, to mature us unto the end of for which you've saved us. Lord, we want to be your people dwelling in righteousness and to use our tongues as instruments of good, having been set on fire by your house and not by Gehenna. So we pray that you would do that in us today as we read and think about your powerful words. Lord, transform us. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So as always, I want to remind you, in case you've forgotten, since it's been three whole weeks, that the subject of the book of James is trial. And specifically, I'm sure you can't forget at this, at this point in time, consider it all joy. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter all kinds of trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without judgment, for the one who judges is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, and not, let that man not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man and unstable in all of his ways. As we've walked through the book of James, we've seen what those verses mean in various contexts. So remember, we go to God in the midst of trial, we ask for wisdom, and God who gives to all men generously, he gives without reproach, he will give wisdom. 
unless we ask in doubting or with judgment. And we've seen in multiple contexts in James that he's building upon what that doubt, what that judgment looks like. It can be judgment of God and his purposes in the midst of our trials, so we judge God and say that this is a temptation brought about for my destruction. The man who says that will not receive wisdom from God. In our text today, James again is encouraging us to run away from judgment, particularly with our mouths. And this is the conclusion of the section on speech that began in chapter 3. And he's saying, do not speak against one another because speaking against your brother is judgment. And if you judge your brother, if you speak against your brother, you've spoken against God and you've judged God, the lawgiver. You will not receive wisdom. It's both. And we'll see why as we go through these verses today. So my plan is to ask the question of, of context within the book of James. So we'll cover a little bit of that first and some more as we go along. Then we'll look specifically at what these words mean, both here in James and in the Old Testament allusions that are in the midst of these two verses. Because this kind of language is particularly fought over. I think we all know that. When Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, it's, it's taken to mean all kinds of things. And for the most part, we in modern America get it exactly wrong. We judge when we shouldn't judge, and we don't judge when we should judge. And so the guide rails of what judging should look like and what speaking against should look like are important. In the context of James, remember we're talking about trouble. And James encourages us to remember that trouble is a good gift from God. And if we don't believe this, if we can't master that bit of theology, that the one, the Father of lights, who dwells in the heaven above, gives down to his children good gifts, including trouble, we will not be able to obey James. Because when trouble comes, we see it coming from the hand of those around us. We may attach God to it, but there's an instigator to that trial and trouble. So in the context of the book of James, remember that they are having trouble at the hands of the Jewish people. So in Acts chapter 6, they've been persecuted. Stephen was put to death by an agreement between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Hebrew Jews, and he was murdered. And out of that murder came mayhem. There was a dispersion. The people were removed abroad and and they were being ravaged. So men were being torn out of their houses, thrown in prison, put to death. There was trouble. And that trouble, you could rightly look at it and say, this comes from men. And the response to that trouble, if we do not believe that it comes from a good God, will be to speak against our brother. So you can think easily then of Joseph, right? His, his brothers gave him trial. And yet he knew this, this truth dwelt in him. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And because of that, he had control over his tongue. So first we need to know that. My second question is context. So to do that, I want to spend a little time. We're going to re read again. I know we've done this before, but beginning in chapter 3, to remember all that James has to say about the tongue and then the specific context in chapter 4. So if you would, join me again in James chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that as such we incur a stricter judgment. 
For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a small rudder wherever the will of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, and the, its fire is set on, and, I'm sorry, and sets on fire the course, the wheel of our life. For every, every species of beasts, of birds, of reptiles, and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we blessed our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder, instability, every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit, and you're envious, so you commit murder, you're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of, the, of God. Or do you speak, think that scripture speaks foolishly? He jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable. Mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brothers. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy but who are you who judge your neighbor? So these two verses come at the end of this section and they're a transition. 
So they sum up all that James wants to tell us about being slow to speak, about the dangers of the tongue, but they also become an introduction for the next section wherein we talk about the coming judgment of God. And we know that because there's an inclusio into chapter 5, uh, verse 9. He uses the same language. Do not complain, my brothers, against one another, that you yourself may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. He uses the same word. Don't speak against your brother because the judge is coming. And so we see that the transition between these two sections, be slow to speak, be careful what you say because the judge is on his way. And we'll cover what comes in the middle and the encouragement and also the judgment that it is against us next week. So one more, one more note about the context here. You recall we read as our call to worship James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. He calls us to draw near. So sequentially in the book of James, he's admonished us for our use of the tongues. He's called us to repent, to draw near. And there's a promise, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And we looked at that. We looked at that four weeks ago now. And we concluded that it is the kind of language that's used in the minor prophets when the people are dispersed and God has picked up and left his house. So there's no house of God. You draw near to God and God will draw near to you, meaning the dispersion, the 12 tribes dispersed abroad outside of Jerusalem. They're not without God in their midst. When you repent and draw near to him, God is dwelling in your midst. And that's important for the context of our verses because where God is, there's danger. Our God is a holy God. He's a righteous God. And so how we use our mouths, even for these people, when they've been cast out of Jerusalem, they're away from the temple, it looks like that trouble has brought them to an end. God is there among them. And so specifically when we think about this command, do not speak against one another, brothers, it's broad. It covers every aspect of our lives, but specifically think about this context, our context here. We're gathering, having been brought near to God. What we do with our mouths here is important because God is with us. He's watching us. He's hearing us. And so Jesus says in Matthew, if you have an offense against your brother, if you have a grievance Lay down, your, lay down your offering. Don't, don't come to the altar now. Lay it down. Take care of it. Do not bring that offense before me. And so we're going to look at what that means, but that's our context for these verses. We are in God's presence, having been humbled, having, having mourned and wept for the sin of our tongues, bringing our trials before God, and he says, do not speak against one another, brothers. So the second question is, who are our brothers. He changes the word in verse 12, so he says, don't speak against one another, brothers, but then he adds another word at the end of verse 12, neighbor, and that's important because it, it, it brings in the allusion to the royal law back from chapter 2, so we'll get to that. But first, I want to think about who is our brother, and we might tend to start with a relatively narrow definition of brother. So thinking of all those who are eschatologically saved. But I think that, especially in the context of James, it's broader than that. I think that it's broader, particularly there's a warning in here about how we judge, who we speak against, because 
because God's judgment is not final. So James is written in that time period between the beginning of Acts and between the destruction of the temple. And so there's a, a mixing of God's people, an Israel called out of Israel and the old Israel, and the distinction is not clear until the temple is destroyed. And so as one piece of evidence, I, I won't spend excessive amounts of time on that, but I'd like you to turn quickly, um, quickly to, to Acts chapter 23. And I believe this will help make more sense of the book of James. Like so many New Testament epistles, you're written to a, a mixed bag. But, but the, the word brother, it extends to everybody. And we'll see why. I have some, some conclusions to make specifically about this as, as we work through what it means to speak against. But Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 5, Paul looked intently at the council and he said, Brothers, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. So he's speaking to the council. He calls them brothers. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law in violation of the law, order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul is quoting out of Exodus 22. You don't need to turn there, but let me just read that command for you. Exodus 22, verse 28. You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. So looking at this council, he says, brothers, these are brothers, because God has not disbanded them yet. He hasn't brought final judgment yet. The high priest is still in place. He has an office given by God. And so Paul, he takes the rebuke and he says, you're right. God says, you may not speak evil of a leader of the people. And so he recognizes that that office is still in place. Now this is important in James. If he's taking this broader context for brothers, do not speak against a brother. And think about James. They are being persecuted by their brothers. So there can be persecution within this foundling church of dispersed tribes, but there's persecution without, but still within the context of brothers. It was the Sanhedrin of the freedmen that brought Stephen on trial before the council. It was those two combined who put him to death. It was that group that's chasing, pursuing, and persecuting God's people. So hold that in your mind. You don't have to agree with it yet, but we'll come back to that that point here in a little bit. So if we take that though, and, and one more piece of evidence just anecdotally, think about David. So David was anointed to be a king and God, God called him. And yet there was this period in which Saul still was given leadership by God. He was still protected by Exodus 22 verse 28. Not only shall you not speak evil of a leader of your people, but of course you cannot grasp and usurp and take away their authority. And so even though Paul 
or sorry, Saul was persecuting David, even though he was clearly turning his back on God, he was protected. So when David cut off the corner of his robe and he was symbolically stealing the kingdom, he had to repent. It was wrong. You can think about all the persecution. This makes this command much harder to follow. Right? Do not speak against your brother. And if it extends to that level, where we have a Saul chasing David, trying to put him to death, or the high priest and all of his cronies pursuing the church, then it's difficult. It's difficult to follow this command. And so we want to know exactly what he means when he says, do not speak against one another, brethren. Remember, this is in the context of trial. When it's not, not just talking about gossip, although that's included, but trouble. And it's in the context of coming before God, drawing near to God. Do not speak against your brother. So what I want to do is first we're going to look at the, the Greek word that's translated speak against in, uh, in both the Septuagint and, and the New Testament. I want to take a, a, a look at a, a few of those spots. There's not very many. And we'll draw some conclusions. And then we're going to go back and look at Leviticus 19. Because James invites us to understand his command through the lens of Leviticus. He, he draws it in by using the word neighbor, sending us right back to chapter 2 where he spent half a chapter talking about this law out of Leviticus 19. So first, the word speak against. Um, you find it a few, a few places, but if you would, quickly just keep your finger in James and flip over to Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has Yahweh indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And Yahweh heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And suddenly Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out of the tent of meeting. So the three came out. Then Yahweh came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, shall make myself known to him a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. And behold, the form, and he beholds the form of Yahweh. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of Yahweh burned against them, and he departed. All I want to notice out of this context is... This is the first use of katalaleho in the Bible, and it's about the context of authority. Same, same thing we're thinking about with regards to the high priest or with, with David and Saul. They're speaking against one in authority. God granted authority to Moses, and Miriam and Aaron are jealous of that authority, and so they're grasping at it, and instead of using a knife like David, they use words to cut at his authority, say, who are you? Just, just like the, the Hebrews said, who are, you to, who are you to be a judge among us? Well, God, he comes and he says, who is he? I planted him here. And when we read Exodus twenty two twenty eight, 28, the command was, you, 
you may not curse God or speak against or, or curse the leader of your people. The two go together. And so at a high level, this is what James is saying. When you speak against your brother, you are speaking against, you are judging God. Because you, you can't split the two apart. The one that God has made, the one he has appointed, the one that he's drawn into his house and called a brother, when we speak against him, we are making a judgment against God and cursing God. And that's exactly what God says to Miriam Aaron. He says, how are you not afraid? Moses, he speaks with me. I brought him into my, by my very presence. He beholds my form. How are you not afraid to speak against this man? And if you, you flip over to Numbers 21, you see the second usage of this word in the Old Testament, and, and it's the same. Numbers 21, verse 4, They set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So, Notice again here, when they speak against, they're speaking against both God and Moses together. Here it's overt. The words are not just against Moses. They recognize it's against God and Moses. And James wants us to understand this. When we're in the midst of trouble and we violate this command, we speak against our brother, we are speaking against God. Now he has, he has a little bit of logic that we'll get to in, in that we're speaking against God's law. So we'll come back to that. But now flip forward to 1 Peter chapter 2. So we, we won't look at every manifestation of this word. Um, it's, used, it's used in Job, it's used in Hosea, but... The contexts are, are largely similar, and we're, we're going to gather a little broader definition here in just a minute. But First Peter chapter 2, Peter is the only other New Testament author that uses this word, and he uses it twice. So look in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you, as evildoers, you may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And, and again, in a chapter, chapter later, he uses the word the same way. And what I want you to notice here is that slander, the speaking against, is an activity that Peter identifies as coming from unbelievers, from the Gentiles. It's directed against God's people. They're reviling God's people slandering them with their mouths in order to tear them down. And so this activity belongs in the, the realm of the Gentiles, in the realm of those who are outside of God's household. Yet when we speak against our brothers, we're taking that speech and bringing it into God's house. We're acting like unbelievers. It's the kind of speech that belongs to Satan, the accuser. Remember, he comes in he comes into God's house. He brings before God's judgment throne, and he stands as an accuser of the brethren. We know that from Revelation 12, verse 10. He is the accuser. We know it from the book of Job. He stands in God's presence, and he accuses Job without cause, I might add. And again, in Zechariah, he comes before God's presence, and he accuses Joshua the high priest. He accuses the people. Satan is the accuser, and when we take this form of speech against our brother, 
we are taking up the words of Satan. We're fulfilling his role as an accuser against God's people. And so you see this, that those who are children of the devil, they use those kinds of words against God's people. They speak against God's people. So now, if you, if you would, back in James, remember, do not speak against one another, brother. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and to destroy, but who are you who judge your neighbor? Now, he uses two words in this section to bring us back to chapters 1 and 2, the two sections that are given to us on the law. He uses the word doer. He says, if you speak against your brother, speaking against is equal to judging, and speaking and judging against your brother is speaking against and judging the law, and therefore God, the lawgiver. And if you do that, if you are a judge of the law, you are not a doer of the law. So coming back to James chapter 1, he encourages us. He says, you are born of the word. You're begotten by the word. It's implanted in your soul. And so prove yourselves doers of this word. It should fill you up, come out of you, because that is your birth story. Prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer is like a man who looks at his Genesis face in the mirror. And once he's looked away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. But one who stoops down and looks intently at the perfect law and abides by it, the law of liberty, has be, and not become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man is blessed in whatever he does. And so James says, if we speak against our brothers... We have forgotten what our face looks like, our birth face, in God's Word. We've forgotten who we are, that we belong to God, that we are not children of the devil anymore, but we're called children of God. And so he says, if we do that and we elevate ourselves to the judge of the law, it is impossible to both be a judge of the law and to be a doer of it. We can't have both. And that's going to prepare us for the coming judgment in the next section. And then secondly, he uses the word neighbor. So if you flip over the page into James chapter 2, just to remind you, he's calling on this law out of Leviticus 19, the royal law, the one that says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he says in verse 8, talking about showing partiality, right out of Leviticus 19, he says if you are fulfilling, if you're doing, perfecting the royal law, According to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit murder, but you do commit, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So you recall the logic of that section. He says, speak and act as those who are under the law, who will be judged by the law. And the law says, love your neighbor as yourself. The law prescribes mercy. And so if you are not merciful, if you do not show love to your neighbor, you will be judged by the law. And so only the merciful will survive. 
Only the merciful will come through the scathing judgment of the law. Therefore, mercy triumphs over judgment. So he takes this logic and he says, don't speak against the law or you violated Leviticus 19. And it's there that I want to turn now. So if you would flip back to Leviticus 19, and we'll spend a little bit of time here uh, launching off into, into the word that he uses here. So Leviticus 19, Hyde read the whole passage for us today. It is about our neighbor, our brother, so we'll just pick it up in verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. Notice in this section, as Hyde read it to us this morning, each, each prescription ends with this phrase, I am Yahweh. It's based on who God is as the covenant-keeping God who comes to rescue his people. Do not persecute your brother. Do not glean to the edges of the field. Leave for the poor and the widow. Give justice to the poor and the widow. And particularly here in verse 16, do not go about as a slanderer. So it's this phrase that James is considering when he says, do not speak against your brother. Do not go about as a slanderer. slanderer. Now, the Hebrew word here has, a, has an extra connotation to it. It means tailbearer. So kind of the, the idea that you're traveling, you're traveling about and, and you're, you're, you're mongering tales. Um, and, and so this word is, is used in a number of different contexts by which we can, we can gain an, an expansive, more expansive idea of what it means to speak against our brother. So Proverbs, Proverbs 11, Proverbs 20, 19, a talebearer, so one who travels about as a talebearer, he exposes secrets. So what does that mean? Well, it means the slander can be true. And it's still considered speaking against your brother. So it's not just lies, although it can include lies, but it, it may be the truth. And yet James is saying, keep your mouth shut. And the author of the Proverbs, Solomon, he's saying, it's a wicked man. It's a fool that goes about, and he's a talebearer, exposing the secrets of his brothers. And then in Jeremiah 9, why don't we turn there quickly. And look in verse 3. God is talking about his people. They bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares Yahweh. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor. Do not trust anyone his brother, because every brother deals craftily. And every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They taught their tongue to speak lies and they weary themselves committing iniquity. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, declares Yahweh. 
Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and assay them. For what else can I do? Because of the daughter of my people, their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceit with his mouth. One speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly he sets an ambush for them. And so this is one of the characteristics of speaking against. So out of one mouth, you speak peace to their face and then separately set an ambush. So remember, in the rules of dealing with conflict, we're always required by God to go to our brothers face-to-face, to speak to them. And yet, slander, the talebearer, the monger, he goes about and he speaks peace to his brother. And remember in James, that's also the goal. Peace is made by those who seek peace. But this kind of peace, where it's peace to your face and slander behind your back, is no peace at all. And it's this idea that is picked up in the Septuagint translation of the word dolos. And I want to turn to one more passage. Sorry, bear with me for all the flipping. Genesis 34 uses this word. You all know the story of Genesis 34. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the Lamb. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hittite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her, and he lay with her by force. And he was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the girl, and he spoke tenderly to her. So we know the story. The brothers get together, and they go, they go to the sons of Shechem. And, and he says, I love, I love her. I'll do whatever you ask. And they say, well... We want you to marry with us, to intermarry, but what you have to do is you have to become one with us. You have to be circumcised because we can't be joined to an uncircumcised people. And it says that they spoke with deceit. It picks up this this word craftiness. So they were crafty in their speech. And physically what they did, of course, is as, as the city was circumcised, they took up their sword and they slew them, Simeon and Levi, together. And it was for this that they're cursed in Genesis 49, because they slew in their anger. But specifically here, what's important to us is how they did it. They first circumcised them. They added them into God's people. They said, you are our brothers. We speak peace to you. You will have peace with us. We'll marry you and intermarry with you. And, and then under that pretext of calling them into brotherhood, they killed them. It's that picture that we have of what we do with our tongues in James chapter 4, of peace out of one mouth and then taking up our sword against the brothers out of the other. I know I'm guilty of this. It's a pervasive sin in which we we open up our mouths, and whether it's big or or small, we speak and we judge one another, oh, so easily. And for this, James calls us to repentance. And we need to take that to heart. But before we, we leave this context, I want you to turn back to Leviticus, because we need, we need to understand the guide rails for what speaking against is. 
So we, we know kind of broadly what it means, in which you speak peace to your brother you, and then go slay him with your mouth. But there is a form of judgment that is appropriate to God's people, and we find it in Leviticus 19. So verse 16, he says, You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart, your brother. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. So is that verse, the next verse I want to think about there. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. And so right here in the law of liberty in which he says, love your neighbor as yourself, this royal law, we cannot go about as slanderers, craftily devising speech against our brothers to tear them down. But, he says, you may surely reprove your, your neighbor. Why? You shall not hate your neighbor in your heart. And so, we, we don't have time to go there, but Luke 17 is where Jesus exegetes this idea. If your brother offends you, go to him. You shall not hate your brother. You cannot allow hate and bitterness to build in your heart. You may surely reprove him. When your brother is in sin, in fact, we're going to find out in James, we should. We should go to our brothers, reprove, rebuke. It's a form of judgment. But you shall not incur sin because of him. Now, you can take that statement two ways. One is, you shall not turn that reproof into the kind of speaking against that James is admonishing us for. So you shall not allow sin to enter you as you're reproving your brother. The other way you could take this statement is you shall not incur sin, so meaning allowing unrepentant, unrebuked sin to stand in the presence of God. Both are valid. Both are right. You shall not incur sin because of your brother. So think about, think about the church in Corinth. Right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is admonishing the, the, the church in Corinth, and he says, there's one among you as his father's wife, and yet you're arrogant. You allow him with no, nothing, no words, to still exist in your midst. You have incurred sin because of him. And so there's a guide rail here in which we are called to judgment. And by the way, Paul uses the word judgment. He calls us to judge our brothers and to not judge our brothers. So... How do we know which to do? Before we turn there, uh, let's, let's look at verse 18 in Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. And so this, this last verse on the subject, he says, you shall not take vengeance. And then he says, you shall not bear a grudge. And what, it, what the word actually means is you shall not guard yourself against the sons of your people. So you can't set up a wall and thus protect yourself either from their sin or from, from, uh, from them at all, right? Unless, unless God removes them from the nation, from the household, there can be no guarding against them. So it's not appropriate, it's not a solution to say, well, I'm not going to speak against my brother and I'm not going to go to him when, I, when he sins, but I'll just keep a distance, a separation, he says, you may not put up a guard against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it's in that word that we can understand what James wants us to know. 
The law is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law says love. How does that, how does that help you know what to do? If you consider Simeon and Levi, they were cursed because of their anger. They brought men into the brotherhood and then they, then they put them to death. And yet in a very similar incident in Exodus, it, God calls them to take up their sword and kill their brothers. And, and they do that. And God commends them for us. And, and again, we read four weeks ago in Numbers chapter 20, 25 that the, 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 the leader of the tribe of Simeon and the leader of the Midianites, his daughter, were together in the tent and they provoked God, and God is putting to death his people. And Phineas, the Levite, stands up and he, and he takes a spear and he goes in the tent and he plunges it through the two of them so that they die there and the plague is checked. Well, in that case, it's easy to see what love means. The people are dying. Sin is being incurred, and so love means this sin must be checked. But I, I think we have more guidelines. I've I, I found it helpful to consider the letter to the Corinthians. So if you would turn there now. I had Hyde read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning for one word. We all know that passage. We know the description of love that Paul gives. It's used at, at, at weddings. And there's, there's one phrase that gets thrown around. Love is not arrogant. And it's that phrase that I want to consider. Paul uses it throughout, throughout his epistle. He uses the word arrogant but he uses it in a way that helps us understand what this royal law is getting after. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is not arrogant. So look in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we'll read in, in verses one, 1 through 6. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant on behalf of one against another." Remember, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is not arrogant. And Paul says that arrogance creeps out when you pass judgment before the time. And specifically, when you pass judgment on things that are hidden in darkness. You have to wait for God to disclose the motives of men's hearts. And so, in verse 18 of that chapter, he picks this thought up and he says, Some of you have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, with love, and a spirit of gen or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It's actually reported that it, there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife, and you have become arrogant. 
and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. And so Paul says, you're arrogant if you judge before, before it's time. So before God brings to light the sin, that's arrogance. But he also says you're arrogant if you don't judge when that sin exists in your midst. How is that arrogance? So there's a certain kind of arrogance that says that this sin won't spread. It won't creep out into the body. It won't cause condemnation from God. It would be arrogant for Phineas to stand back and say, it's not me who's sinning in the tent. And so to stand passively by. That's its own kind of arrogance. We are dictated, dominated by the law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so that dictates how we speak. There is a time for judgment, but it's ruled by this law, the law of love your neighbor as yourself. And when we're thinking of our neighbor and love them as ourself, Paul would say that it is love. It is love to judge this man in 1 Corinthians 5, both love for him and love for the church, because Paul says, I've decided to deliver this one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. All right, so what does all this mean? God calls us to love our neighbor, to not speak against our neighbor, because speaking against and judging our brother or our neighbor is speaking against and judging the law, but there's only one lawgiver, God. And if we're a judge of the law, we're not a doer of it. Instead, we fall under condemnation from it. So we have to be careful careful in our speech, and particularly the principle is, as we come into God's presence, there's a limitation on bringing our brothers into the presence of God to speak against them. We won't go into it here, but the limitations are in Matthew 18. There's a process in which you go face to face, right? So it's not brought before the body. We don't speak against that brother before God and before the body, instead face to face, not as a tailmonger, a bearer, not craftily in order to bring them down, but instead for the purpose of building them up. We are under that restriction until God judges, meaning when he casts someone out, when he says you're not in the brotherhood anymore, when you're removed from my house, then they fall outside of the bounds of being a brother. Not that we have free reign of speech, that's, that's not my point, but thinking about those who are persecuting the people in the book of James. They're still in the brotherhood. God has not judged them yet. And so he says, be careful. And in, our, in the section coming, he says, judgment is coming. The Lord is at hand. Be careful. God will judge. And so there's an encouragement there to be patient, to wait but don't take on the role of Satan, the accuser, to bring your brother before God for the purpose of judgment. Why? Because there's one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and to destroy. We'll end in, in Isaiah 33, where we began. There's one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and to destroy. So fundamentally, God saves and God destroys. We don't know the outcome until he judges. 
And so there is a form of judgment we know from Matthew 16 in which he gives to the church to bind and to loose, but that judgment is not given to any one of us individually. We cannot remove a brother as individuals. We cannot treat one who has not been removed from the brotherhood as outside. Instead, God says, what you bound on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And so he directs through his body. But until that time, do not speak against do not pass judgment on. Because if you do, if you say, well, God has not passed judgment, but I must because I know more. We're saying, well, God, you don't know what you're doing. Your law is not sufficient. I cannot love my neighbor. So ending in Isaiah, Isaiah 33, remember he asked this question, says, who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who can, who can live with its continual burning? In the presence of God, God is a consuming fire. Who can be there? Who can dwell in God's presence? He who walks righteously and speaks sincerely. He who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ear from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He will dwell on the heights in God's house. And your eyes, verse 17, will see the king in his beauty and they'll behold a far off distant land. Skip over to verse 22. For Yahweh is our judge, Yahweh is our lawgiver, Yahweh is our king, he will save us. It's the words that James uses. There's one lawgiver and one judge who's able to save and destroy. We love our neighbor as ourselves. We love in the midst of trial without lashing out, even when it seems like the judgment is sure because we know who God is. There's one judge, one lawgiver, and we know, we know from James that he is a good and generous father. He's in heaven and he gives good gifts to his children, and those gifts are trial. And so when we see the trouble and we're tempted to speak out, to speak against and to judge our brother, we must remind ourselves, God is the good giver of this trouble. And so if I speak against my brother, if I bring him in judgment prematurely and judge the motives of his heart and uncover what's not for me to uncover, then we are not just judging him, but judging God. There's one lawgiver, one judge, and Yahweh is our king, and he will save us. We stand in his presence only because he's merciful to us, only because he's shown love to us. Let's extend that love to one another. If you would pray with me. Father, we need help in guarding our speech and, and guarding from, from judging those whom you have not. Lord, we, we want to be guided by you to, to sit humbly under your hand, under your law, under you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us grace and eyes to see who you are, to be able to rejoice in trouble and not lash out against our brothers. We know that, Lord, right now the world is filled with slander. It teaches us to slander. Even while saying, judge not, lest you be judged, it teaches us to slander our brother in secret and even publicly. So, Lord, we pray that, pray that you would spare us from this sin, the one that creeps in and makes our speech unclean and impure, that, that divides and destroys your body. Help us to submit to you. You are the judge and the lawgiver. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you that you chose not to destroy us. 
So we pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.